This is Daniel Figella, and you're listening to our third episode of this five-part Thursday series called AI Futures. This AI Futures series is focused on human reward systems and generative AI. What does our future look like when AI can custom craft experiences explicitly for us? And when you think about an immersive VR experience, you might imagine a VR experience that makes you feel relaxed or maybe makes you feel excited. But what about more abstract emotions? What about getting a sense of possibility or confidence in yourself? Our guest this week, taught at Harvard Medical School for over 10 years, has been in the space of neurotech and virtual reality for over 10 years, and is currently the chief medical officer and co-founder of Roulet Incorporated, which is a firm focused on VR and the human experience. Dr. Srini Pillay is our guest, and he speaks with us this week on our theme of generative AI, immersive virtual experiences, and human reward systems. Two topics that really jumped out to me among the many that we discuss in this episode. One, what is possible today in terms of altering people's emotional states with virtual reality? There's some really strong use cases in the medical field already, which may soon become available to those using consumer technology. And Srini unpacks some of those for us. And he also talks about some of the challenges of customizing experiences to individual users. He gives us his vision of what it's going to take to make experiences truly responsive to the user themselves, to make them excited or relaxed or feel a sense of possibility specific to them, not a general experience that makes people relax, but something that responds to the individual user in real time. There are some technical challenges here, and Srini's insights from the medical space, I think, are very, very helpful in imagining where the future of consumer tech might take us. Imagine a world where you want to feel relaxed, and you can be. Imagine a world where you want to feel excited, and you can be. Well, Srini unpacks a little bit of how we might get there. Without further ado, let's dive right in. This is Srini Pillay with Roulette here on the AI in Business podcast. So Srini, welcome to the program. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, really like the beginning of our conversation is is pretty awesome. Oh yeah, we have teed up we have teed up hours worth of chats that we're going to have to fit into thirty five minutes today. So I'm also quite excited to dive in. You are right in the sweet spot of what we're studying for this series, and we'll start off with really the the locus of this series is around kind of how VR and AI are interacting with reward circuits. People talk about how social media hooks into reward circuits, the internet, online gaming, etc. VR takes a lot of this to a next level, and a lot of your work is around, in a medical context, correlating a VR experience to an emotional state, relaxation, focus, even more abstract things like a sense of possibility. Talk to us a little bit about how VR and immersion tie to an emotional state and what you've learned from kind of the cutting edge there. We'll start with that. For me, one of the most fascinating things about virtual reality is that you have a body that's sitting in a chair, that's, that's your actual body, and then you have the body that believes it's walking in the woods, for example. And the body that believes it's walking in the woods because of what your brain does to convince it that it, that it is immersed in that, it can experience a calmness, this illusory body can experience a calmness that transfers to the actual body. I've been thinking about this so deeply that I actually call it body illusion medicine. I think it has the potential to become a whole new field where the illusory body that believes it is in the VR space actually transfers the therapeutic effect to the actual body. Now, there's two elements there. One is we know believing can actually, believing in something positive can actually increase dopamine and impact the reward circuitry and can actually increase opioids in the brain. 
And we know this from placebo studies. So, for, you know, for example, there was one study that looked at people with three tubes of cream, and they were all neutral creams. But one was labeled lidocaine, one was labeled capsaicin, and the third was labeled neutral. And, and lidocaine for pain relief, when people took that, they said, wow, this feels really calming. And when they took the capsaicin, they were like, oh, this stings a little. And when they took the neutral, they said nothing happened. And when you looked in their brains, what you saw was that when you expect something positive, the reward circuits light up. And when you expect something negative, the pain circuits light up. So what this tells us is that our expectation and belief can change what's going on in the brain. And so in VR, if you are immersed in a positive expectation, this expectation translates. But the immersion itself creates a consciousness state that is different than our waking state. So for example, if you are going through the woods, you could be walking through the woods, you could be levitating through the woods. Now prior to this, levitation was an abstract thing that was talked about as part of meditation. But in VR, you can feel like you're floating. And if we actually know that meditative states like mindfulness meditation can decrease anxiety, can decrease amygdala activation in the brain, then what we know is that these consciousness states in VR can potentially do the same through that mechanism. Yeah, and, and this, I mean, the idea of relaxation, very, very interesting and important. I've said a hundred times, if I wasn't focused on AI, I would be focused on the placebo effect because it it is the most magical and mysterious thing. I, for me, every headline in every newspaper every day should be about the literal magic conjured forth by the placebo effect. And to your point, well, in, in VR, obviously, there's there's a big impact here. I mean, I know there's labs working on putting people in a cold environment where they're they're playing some game in the snow while they're getting surgery on their third degree burns. And this is helping them decrease pain because they actually feel a little bit cold and they don't feel the heat. Or if they do feel the sensation, it actually feels like cold and not like heat simply because of the mind. So clearly, to your point, immersion helps us get there. You're working on, you know, in a medical context, it makes a lot of sense that we want to maybe be able to conjure forth relaxed states through a VR environment. These more abstract ideas, off microphone, you and I were talking, you had mentioned that some of the work you're working on is not just getting people to feel relaxed or less worried, but maybe even getting them to have a heightened sense of possibility or something more in the abstract like that. How, how do we quantify those more, I guess, composite emotional states? And how do we calibrate to try to hit on those reliably in kind of a VR environment. So, so I used to direct the outpatient anxiety disorders program at McLean Hospital. So I have some experience in you know, how anxious states present. And right now, our diagnostic classification in psychiatry is not the best. So what we decided to do was to look at symptom clusters within the broad spectrum of anxiety that might actually be the main uncomfortable feeling that someone is feeling. So when you're anxious, you feel overwhelmed. So the first, the first group of experiences would be experiences that decrease overwhelm. When you're anxious, you also have biased attention to threat and, and you worry a lot. So distraction can actually help you feel less worried. When you're anxious, you also feel like you can't focus. And so improving focus can decrease your anxiety. Huh. When you're anxious, you also feel like your body is tense. So relaxing the body can decrease anxiety. When you're anxious, you also feel like you're stuck in a rut. So having an escape can decrease that anxiety. And when you're anxious, you have a sense of foreshortened future, which means you can't think too far into the future. And as a result, a sense of possibility can relieve that. So that's the way I've been thinking about that specifically. Yeah. So tell me if I'm on the right page here, but it sounds like dealing with anxiety is not necessarily just trying to in some way 
attack the anxiety itself. It's trying to conjure the things that are antithetical to it. So a sense of focus, if we're focused on something and focusing successfully, anxiety might decrease. And so being able to sort of move in that direction might help. You know, you mentioned something like reducing a sense of overwhelm. Are these things, you know, I imagine what we've got to be able to do is score this. And we're having to score things that are in people's minds, which is a, a real challenge here. But give somebody a VR experience, say, how relaxed do you feel now? Or look at their EEG, for example, or look at the, the pain scale or how much they're flinching when we're doing our surgery. There's probably some ways to proxy this. How do we proxy for things like a sense of possibility, these other positive states, which, by the way, I think everybody wants these things, right? People want to wake up not with a sense of dread about work, but with a, a sense of enthusiasm and excitement. We would all love to conjure more of that. How do we go about quantifying that in, in sort of a VR ecosystem? So right now, you know, I think there are existing methodologies and I think they're good, but I do think we have to keep on improving them. So in our, in our study with Mayo Clinic, we actually use standardized questionnaires. So there are things, there's a, a set of tools called the Promise Tools, P-R-O-M-I-S Tools, Promise Anxiety, Promise Focus, Promise Emotional Distress that have been standardized. And so we use that pre-VR and then administered the experience and then looked at it post-VR. So the, the answer is standardized tools. In terms of possibility, that's a little bit trickier because there isn't a standardized tool to yeah, measure okay. But I've created a tool called the Possibility Index, hmm. which we're testing right now and, and trying to see how we can get reliability and validity as well. Got it. So it's about developing these tools. And I know from kind of being on the, the cognitive science side myself that there's a real development process for those, right? Because we, you know, to learn that the big five were actually consistent across people was a real journey, right? And there's plenty of other metrics that people want to think are really good proxies, but but they're not. So uh, social science is tough there. But I, I guess to your point, the development and testing of these new methodologies might allow us to coax out these more nuanced experiences across different people's experience. And this takes us into, when we talk about different people's experience, the notion of customizing these. One of the things that we're really looking at for this interview series and thinking about for the future here is how immersive AI states will be able to be customized for people. Part of the appeal of something like a Netflix or something like a YouTube is you're constantly being presented with new material based on what you've engaged with in the past to kind of throw you down a rabbit hole and really be able to pull you in. And I'm not saying those companies are bad companies filled with bad people. I'm just saying it's the nature of part of the addictive thing here is that we've got our circuitry that's able to run. In the VR world, I think there's an even richer ability to have relaxation, not just be a YouTube video of, you know, some nice music with a cat sitting next to a fireplace, but something way more hyper tailored and calibrated to us that might be conjured forth. But there's also barriers to making personalization work in VR. You're working at this threshold here. Talk a little bit about where the science has to push forward and what those key factors are that will allow a VR experience to be different for you or me if we want to feel relaxed or you and me if we want to feel a sense of possibility. So in terms of the, the big subject, which is the current gold standard for measurement in medicine is a double-blind placebo-controlled trial. And what this gives us is group data. It says, if I give you a VR experience, it, it worked for, it, it, it worked compared to a placebo and therefore it, it works in general. The problem with that is that a lot of people are not aware that in medicine, there, there are numerous contradictions with even core ideas. And I'll give you two examples. If I said to you, what do you think about, if, you're, if you have blockage of your coronary arteries, and you said, well, I, I, it looks like I need cardiac surgery, I need a bypass graft, might that work? Well, studies have shown from 2004 onward that in many, many instances, coronary artery bypass grafts are equal to placebo. 
Studies have also shown that if you look at lowering cholesterol levels, if you, if you look at lowering LDL levels, in the American Journal of Cardiology and, and the British Medical Journal, so these are not peripheral journals, they have shown that in, in many instances, in meta-analyses, you can increase the chances of stroke by lowering your cholesterol, and you can increase the chances of death. So how do you know, when you come to me and you say, my cholesterol is high, I say, well, the standard right now is to use uh, is to use a drug to lower your cholesterol. So why don't I give that to you? But there's a chance you might die sooner. I, I don't know. How do we work with that? If you say, well, I need cardiac surgery, I say, well, you know, in many instances it helps, but for stable ischemic heart disease, it's equal to placebo. You know, if you have something in your knee and I see some gunk in an x-ray, there are certain surgical procedures which apparently make sense because there's gunk and you remove the gunk, but studies show that it's equal to placebo in yep. terms of functionality. Remarkable. Absolutely. We're talking 10 years post-surgery, right? I mean, we're talking the, so, the, the longitudinal effects of this are just unbelievable. So what that leads us with is, well, you know, maybe we have to personalize stuff because how else am I going to know, you know, how to do this? So the first level of personalization is matching to people's demographics, genetics, biometrics, physiology, inflammatory markers. And that's a decent way to do it. You know, what was interesting about some of the initial experiments with Watson at, at IBM was that the predictive ability was really not that great. And so we know that we can't just take it for granted that if I put 5 million variables into something, it's going to spit out an accurate answer for you. And that leads us with the next level of, of question, which is apart from personalization, there's also a term in medicine that we use, which is called ideographic medicine, which means that there are intangibles within you that make you unique. and so. Whatever this sort of individualized intervention in VR ideally is going to be, it's not just something that we know can match to your measurable characteristics, but something that also matches to some intangibles. And you know, early on we were talking we were talking about qualia and about yeah. the fact that there are these intangibles. The way you see red and the way I see red may be different. And what if an image needs to be slightly different for it to have a therapeutic effect for you because your qualia are different from mine? Yeah. And, and so I guess the question then becomes how we proxy for that. The, the way I would imagine it, and I'd love your thoughts because you're actually working on the hardware in addition to thinking about this, is we'd be working with some rough level of EEG, EKG, you know, tracking the heart, tracking the brain, some kind of wave, something quantifiable, maybe looking at eye tracking, for example, you know, as a proxy for attention, where attention is being drawn, et cetera, and triangulate somehow between those factors to say, are we moving closer to relaxation or farther? And as that happens, maybe the image fades more purple because it seems like sinking into purple is getting it done for him. Or maybe the sound tweaks and shifts and goes from ear to ear back and forth in some melodic way because that seems to be working for this person. And what works to relax you today, Srini, might not work tonight, right? You may need something different. So I literally think that our circuitry is not just plug and play. It has to be responsive. And I would imagine that eyes, EEG, EKG are going to be what it takes to get to personalization to make somebody, I hate to say the holy grail here is people, you mentioned qualia, people want qualia. What do I really want right now? It's just a change in emotional state. You know, I want to feel more happy, more relaxed, more like excited and achieving everything I'm trying to do, you know, whether it's earning revenue or whatever. These are all proxies for some kind of change in qualia I want to experience. We're talking about getting towards the holy grail of almost closing the loop of our reward circuits. Do you see those sensors as being critical? Or do you also see other factors as being critical to really know the qualia difference if something's working? Well, I, I do think it's going to require a very huge data set to be able to make reliable predictions. Yeah. And that's a big challenge in medicine. 
because of the confidentiality issues, for example, it's very difficult for an entrepreneurial company, for example, to work with a hospital and then have access to all of that data for confidentiality reasons. So one big thing, which I think is going to relate to AI, is that we have to collect data sets that are large enough, but we may actually have to also create synthetic data sets using generative adversarial networks so that we can, we can bolster those and then add to our predictive power. So I believe that measuring the more mainstream things like EEG or heart rate variability is going to be critical because we have to at least exclude those or include them in the final algorithm. But I also believe that there are other ways of, measure, of, of measurement that are becoming intriguing to a lot of people. And I'll, I'll, I'll mention two of them. There's a theory that's called integrated information theory, which relates to the measurement of consciousness in any integrated system. And so there are physicists who are working on consciousness measurements that are not even necessarily in the brain, just aggregations of information. So this in medicine is outside of our bodies, is largely called the exposome. What we're realizing in medicine is that your well-being is very interactive with your environment. And the exposome are all the environmental factors that can change the way you're feeling. You know, it, it could be as simple as a sunrise or a sunset. It could be climate. It could be oxygen. It could be color. It could be geometry. There, there are a lot of different factors. But if we can measure things like consciousness outside of the human body and then add that to the data set, I think that takes us in a different field. And there's someone I recently talked to who is able to measure, and I don't know the, the, the actual science behind this, but the claim is the ability to measure biofields, which are fields of energy around the body as well. So I think we're going to have to do more than just probe the body. Yeah. I think we have to probe what's around the body to add that to the data set to be able to change the state of, of, of human well-being. I, I will be very frank with you. I have not even thought down that path. I think that some people would hear that and say, oh, some some you know Chinese chi idea here of yada yada. I don't really believe in this. But I, I think it is quite likely, I'm humble enough, I, I hope, to to suspect that most things we don't understand, the vast majority yeah. of things, and almost everything we do understand will be laughable in 20 years to 100 years. So I do think that there is plenty that we do not grasp specifically about consciousness itself. In fact, we might argue that it is a screaming shame that we do not understand more about consciousness because of how morally relevant it is. The fact that we're so ignorant of it is, is actually quite a shame. But what you're getting at is, yes, we'll need to probe the body, but we may need to start to measure other components of how someone is responding or even environmental things that somehow tie to mind states because it is more than just how much is the heart beating, how many neural pops are we seeing in these different brain regions? You're, you're saying that a more holistic view will develop. Do those fields of science have to develop then commensurate with this? Because it almost sounds like we won't be able to get to the personalization. You and I were talking about this super rich, hyper calibrated, pick your qualia and feel it level unless these other areas of inquiry become more secure. What are your thoughts about that? What's it going to take to get there? I think that those areas of inquiry need to work alongside mainstream science so that there can be a continuous dialogue. I also believe only partly in linearity. I mean, I, I believe in linear thinking when, when we're communicating just because it's a, you know, it's, it's a decent thing to do if there are a lot of people around and they want to understand. But if you look at some of the most major discoveries, if you look at Einstein's theory of relativity, Einstein described it as a musical perception. You know, he didn't just logically arrive at this. Something happened and there was an emergent thought. If you look at Carrie Banks Mullis, who, who discovered a way of making synthetic DNA, 
he was driving with his girlfriend from Berkeley to Mendocino. He was in a car. He had had some wine. He stopped. His lab mates hated him. They were like, he does not follow the scientific principles. He does not work at things, you know, with, from the fundamentals up. Yeah. And he suddenly got out of his car and started scribbling on a rock face and then went to their cabin and it occurred to him, wait a minute, this is how this occurs. Eureka. So, so I think we need to have, the scientific method is a great framework upon which we can explore, but our methods of exploration, I think, need to be more varied. I think they need mm. to be collaborative. I think we need to think way across fields. Like right now, I'm working with an NFT artist, Krista Kim, who whose art I noticed, and I was like, wait a minute, this is like it's changing something in my consciousness. Like I, I want to try to understand what she's up to. And you know, she's a long-term meditator. Her NFTs have proven to be extremely popular. And we've now decided that we are going to be combining forces to figure out how science, art, and technology can work together. I think without those combinations, medicine on its own, I'm not that impressed with the progress. Uh-huh. Well, look, I will say this. I think if left on my own, I think I'm 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 often going to be thinking about okay, what are the sensors to put on, etc. But but I would concur with you completely that there is so much we don't understand, and and you're making a pretty strong argument here that the components of a rich personalized experience from the vantage point of inside of a human skull, which a whole universe shoots out of every skull, right? I mean, a whole universe shoots out that that it's it's richer than slapping something on my index finger that's going to show my heart rate and little proxies like that. And so I think that's a really interesting point that we're probably not going to hear too many other times in the series, but one that I think warrants being brought up. So I like that a lot. I'm going to talk on the geometry thing for two seconds before we get into the future and talking about ideas about the future. But I, I want to touch on this. A lot of the time when people imagine what would be a great virtual experience, I actually think people are embarrassingly unimaginative. Because they are only imagining like if, what was it, John Locke or something, you know, if all you know is the concept of gold and the concept of a duck, all you can imagine is a golden duck. I think that when people imagine VR, oh, it would be so cool, I would do click and it's going to be things they would do in the real world. But like you said, in VR, you can float through nature. In VR, you can float through nature and all the leaves are like rainbow colors. In VR, you can float through nature, everything's rainbow colors and you're not floating through air, you're floating through like pudding. Like there's no there's no limitations here. And I think that there are inherent brain circuits where that you and I will respond to. If we go walk in the woods, there's some circuit there. And that circuit's probably been there since Rodentia, by the way. Probably been around since since we had a, a postage stamp layer of cortex. So that some of those those circuits are pretty well baked in there. But there's all kinds of other things that might light us up that don't have some natural corollary, some real world corollary. They're entirely new. What might relax me might actually not the best relaxation might not be look like a waterfall with butterflies. It might look like insane things I've never thought of. You're now talking about geometry. It sounds like this ties to this idea, this idea of triangles that are rotating or circles. There's something harmonizing about it. It's not natural, but somehow it affects us. What are your thoughts about VR experiences that achieve these states that we want, excitement, possibility, relaxation, lack of anxiety, whatever, being something we've never imagined before? Yeah, I, I feel very strongly about this for, for a lot of reasons. You know, There's an, a scientific article entitled A Virtual Reality for Non-Ordinary Consciousness. And what it points at is that apart from calming you down or making you excited, you can have transcendent states. And these transcendent states we know from everyday life don't only come from 
obvious experiences. Surrealistic art, for example. You know, you see a man with apples in his eyes, and it's like, wow, that made me feel like something. What's that? But, you know, there are no apples here. There are eyes. <laughs> but somehow having apples in your eyes, it's evocative in a certain way. So, you know, physical form can help us change our states of consciousness. And for me, the promise of changing states of consciousness is underlined by a recent study of long-term transcendental meditators that showed that transcendental meditation was able to downregulate all 49 genes associated with inflammation and upregulate genes associated with improved immunity and oxygen-carrying capacity. So what is that telling us? Well, the practice of repeating a mantra and closing your eyes and allowing yourself to go into that consciousness state can change what's going on in your body at a genetic level. And virtual, and only 10% of the world meditates. So for the other 90% of the world, how do we create consciousness states that, that can impact their own physiology? This is really, and, and some of those states might not be conjured by a walk in nature. They might be conjured by something else. I really like where you're headed here. And again, a lot of the focus for this series is sort of around, again, the interplay with reward circuits, what's going to hook people, what's going to kind of What's going to be a richer experience? And VR might have the possibility to be a richer experience. You're bringing up actually something that also warrants some study here in that our inner experience actually affects the body. I think a lot of the time people are assuming, okay, well, if we're in VR, it is for better or for worse to neglect the body. I, I think there might be a future where we are in a husk of some kind, where we're lying down in some sort of a haptic environment. There's a way to reduce waste and that's where 16 hours of our days are. Like if, if we went back 100 years and you told your great, great grandparents that you would be on a screen looking at a screen like you are with me for 16 hours a day, they would say that is hell and that will never happen. But here you are, brother. Here you are. And I think in the future, we will be somewhere else, brother. We will be somewhere else. And so that might happen. It's often assumed that VR is the neglect of the body. You're bringing up this fascinating point. Some of these experiences resonate with and even heal or have different positive effects on the body, is there a way to calibrate and move towards that via a generative VR experience? So it's it's actually thinking about how can we not just escape the physical form and have it wither away, but maybe even strengthen it by going into this virtual world. Absolutely. I mean, that, that to me is a huge promise wow. of, of what virtual reality offers. And I think another aspect that we talked about was the sort of look learning from the therapeutic effects of psychedelics. And understanding that there is data to show that psychedelics can decrease inflammation, they can change brain states, and they can reorganize the self. You know, we have 100 billion neurons and 100 trillion circuits. Yeah. The self that, that's showing up today is not the only self that, that you could have. You, you could rearrange self-circuitry. And so the question would be, can we use generative art to rearrange self-circuitry and calibrate so that you dose control this and say, actually, here's where I want to stop. This is the self yeah. that I want. And the idea that we could have multiple selves in one life, that you could be the artist, the scientist, the technology person, that you could be you know, a person who has this personality versus another personality. I mean, there's a lot of freedom in that unless you're intimidated by, by what <laughs> that future holds. Yeah. I, Emerson has this wonderful quote that I'll probably botch about Anyone to, who would truly wish to relish a day would have to live with a hundred heads and a hundred eyes and whatever else. And I think there's something to be said of the richness of experiences way outside of the the linear track that we're doing on a sales call or we're doing in one interview or, or what have you. And there might be a way to rip open that possibility space. And frankly, I think it's quite clear that is already fulfilling for people. And maybe there's ways to be a conduit to that. This will take us to our last sort of question set. And we'll focus on the positive here. You know, thinking about where this might take us, there will be 
if if things progress on the AI and VR side, and potentially on the science of consciousness, which as you've brought up, may need to evolve and level up in order for us to really proxy a qualia state in someone's head. I think that's a really wonderful point you brought up. Assuming some of these things develop, we'll be able to say, I want to enter a world, you know, haptic VR AI, and I want to be relaxed. And we will be able to be relaxed more than the physical world could ever relax us. Nothing will be able to calibrate as tightly, as closely as this will. The same thing with other kinds of experiences like enthusiasm or maybe even feeling loved, for example. I can imagine VR environments that would be remarkable at hyper-dialing into the specific childhood things or romantic things or perversion things that individual people have to, to light those circuits up for them to the point where the world can't compete. I couldn't have my job if I posted all of my articles by writing with a quill. I would not be able to compete. I think at some point, a lot of the physical world won't be able to compete with the digital in a similar way. What are the positive futures that could lead to? What are you sort of hoping that this blossoms into, maybe in medicine in the near term where you're focused, but even for humanity in kind of the philosophical sense? Well, I think the ability to have access to answers and to spend brain real estate on things that matter, I think would be amazing. You know, rather than, so, you know, for example, we used to need to remember a lot of different things. And now we can just look it up. And if you look it up, the answers are there. So then we have to ask the question, how will we be using the brain real estate that used to remember in a different way? Because, you know, brain regions, they become specialized to do certain things, but there's a lot of evidence to show that you can change what their actual functions are. So that's a, it's an important future question. You know, if, you know, retaining large amounts of data becomes less of an issue, what will I use my brain real estate for? And that I think is a, is a cool thing. I, for me, the, the opt, the op, my, my optimism about this lies in the fact that I think that artificial intelligence, to the extent that we can process large amounts of data, can help us diagnose more accurately, can help us understand the prognosis more accurately. But more importantly, let's say you say someone with a particular cancer has a 20% chance of survival. It can help us understand for those 20% of people who survive, what's particular about them so that you can survive, not just looking at the 80% of people who, who did not survive. So artificial intelligence can help improve diagnosis, prognosis, and also the type of intervention. If you have to make every piece of art, that's going to take a lot of time. But if you can feed an algorithm to say, I want you to create a million distracting experiences, and these are the criteria. It needs to be through the woods. We need to have two unusual things appearing at segment one, segment yeah, two. Yeah, 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 sure, uh, sure. And then I also think it's important for optimizing. You know, you, earlier on, you, you talked about how you know, right now people are, are optimizing for adherence, right? So people are able to match experiences to you so that you'll keep coming back. Engagement, yeah, that's the business model, yeah. Right. I think what we, what we need to do with healthcare is add to that engagement for, is add to that AI for outcome. Because not everything that engages you is necessarily oh, good. Oh, definitely, totally different. They're different, yeah, I would there's agree. A, there's a literature that's, that's emerging that's, that's looking at one minute TikTok videos showing the negative effects on attention even though people love watching them and they have a tolerance for that. So we have to, I think, be aware of that as well. But I think the idea of, of generating a large number of experiences, having many more personalized interventions, many more unique interventions as well, is a great promise for, for AI. It is. And you brought up a point before we were rolling too that I want to touch on and leave people to mull over for themselves. You know, I had mentioned to you that I think it's foreseeable. I couldn't tell you if it's two years or 15 that the best teacher, maybe even the best friend, maybe even the best romantic partner in an uncontested, absolutely 
completely defeating a real world person sense w- would be in VR, that there would be somebody who doesn't have a needs and agenda of their own, who doesn't need any physical resources from me, or maybe even have their own emotional needs outside of some proxy for them that makes them feel real. But otherwise is extremely wise, extreme calibrate their voice, their their physiognomy. Everything is altering to have an ideal effect on me, whether it's improving my skills, you know, feeling loved, whatever the case may be. I think many people consider this dystopic. I do wonder if there's any way to not go down that route. And there might actually just be a sense that actually our richest relationships are there. We can wire into our individual circuitry and there's less conflict. But but then you had brought up the great point that that might really sort of train us away from the way real human relationships actually work. Do you have a concern there? Is there anything we need to bear in mind as we potentially head towards that future? Yeah, you know, I think we need to be aware of whatever this need for slavery consciousness is, where you go to a machine and you ask and you get exactly what you yeah. want. You get it, you get what you want, when you want, no matter what. Yeah. And so, you know, that's great from a machine. But if that becomes your mental training, and then you look at people in your life and you don't get what you want, you're going to be enraged. You're going to say, 10 minutes? You, my food's going to come in 10 minutes? I want it now. Exactly, yeah. Because your brain's getting used to getting everything now. Yep. So I think being aware of that is, is what we you know. I, I believe being reasonable about any of this is the, is, is the direction we need to go in. But another point that I mentioned is that if AI does not have emotion, and, you know, and it's debatable whether AI is sentient, then we're going to be developing a relationship with something that is not going to be activating the mirror neurons. So we get less activation. And then the question becomes, will that make us more autistic? And is autism adaptive for the future human? I mean, I think this is a wonderful point to end on because I think, you know, you and I talked again off off mic. There was some point two million years ago where there were all kinds of different hominids out there. I mean, there was a variety of them, brother. There were ones with big biceps. There were ones still swinging in trees. There were ones that had thicker fingernails. There were ones that liked to use tools. There were ones that did this, that, and the other thing. There were ones that like cold environments, warm environments. It just so happened that given the weird state of things, the way it shook out, some kind of tool use and bipedalism just tended it bubbled up to work. The environment was such that they survived. We might not say autism is inevitably going to, you know, be best or better or whatever, but is it the case that actually getting what we want in terms of being fulfilled, never mind in terms of achieving goals, it might be almost the baseline way of thinking moving forward and that, you know, everything is attenuating and turning into something else. Is that where we're going? Are there goods and bads associated with that? Unfortunately, we don't have the time to answer it, Srini, but you've put some of the biggest possible questions on the table and also opened up the can of worms of thinking non-linearly about what personalization qualia looks like, which I think gives us a lot more to think about. So I know that's all we have for time, but thank you so much for being able to share your expertise with us today. This is a real blast. Sure thing. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up episode three of our five-part Thursday series of AI Futures, focused on generative AI and human reward systems. If you want to see some of Srini's quotes in context with our broader research and check out our infographics and insights on where generative AI might be taking us, go to emerj.com slash reward. That's emerj.com slash R-E-W-A-R-D, reward. And you can read our full article and check out our infographics on where we think 
generative AI might be taking us. It seems quite clear that there are some very real risks of these technologies pulling us away from productivity, but there's also opportunities to potentially enhance it. We explore that in greater depth. Speaking of the pros and cons of this technology, our interviewee next Thursday in part four of this five-part series is a renowned AI ethicist and AI technology expert. She is a global leader for IBM's AI ethics initiatives, a professor of some 20 years in this space, and the president of the American Association for Artificial Intelligence. There is only one Dr. Francesca Rossi, and she joins us next week. And in her episode, we get a unique perspective on the pros and cons of these technologies, and you are not going to want to miss her episode. So I look forward to catching you next Thursday. Again, next Tuesday, we just get back to our very normal pace, AI use cases and trends, as always, coming up on Tuesday. But next Thursday is episode four of our Generative AI and Human Reward System series, and I look forward to catching you, hopefully, for both episodes. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll catch you soon.